Trevor Alici is Overcritical, sponsored by Big Village Anchovies. <laughs> the bigger the village, the smaller the fish. One begins with the letter S, and the other one begins with the letter E. <laughs> and welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Trevor. And um, today we are dealing with an interesting topic, one that I didn't think that we would get to so quickly on the pod, but uh, considering the last episode's sort of content that focused slightly on empathy and the role of empathy in dealing with people who are overcritical, I thought I'd just go ahead and dive into uh, our understanding of that word empathy. I've got some legitimate source material for this episode. So, you know, buckle up, get ready. Um, But before we get started, uh, a couple of updates. I now have an email address for the podcast. So you can email me if you want to share your overcritical thoughts about being overcritical, about empathy versus sympathy, about how poorly constructed this podcast is. (laughs) Um, And so you can email the pod at Trevor Alici at gmail.com. I'll be checking for your, you know, your comments, your feedback, your, your questions, your concerns, maybe even suggestions of possible topics for an episode. Maybe you also want to let me know how it went when you uh, visited your local grocer and asked about Big Village anchovies. I'd love to hear um, about your experiences there. If if your local grocer carries Big Village, um, I'll pass that information along to the company and, um, you know, see if we can, uh, you know, make their sponsorship of this podcast worthwhile. <laughs> All right, so we'll take a break and be right back. All right, so before we get started... Uh, There's something about me I think I need to explain. I know we don't know each other very well, so this may be a little awkward. But I felt like I needed to admit something to you. I'm a nerd. (laughs) Maybe you figured that out already. Very perceptive of you. But I'm a particular kind of nerd. I am a word nerd. What that means is that I'm fascinated by languages, um, interested in particular on words themselves, where they come from, their histories, their development over time. I got a minor in linguistics in college, and, you know, I, I try to listen to some language podcasts from time to time. And so... That sort of explains a little bit why um, I wanted to do this episode on empathy. I've noticed 
over the past, I don't know, decade or so, certainly the last few years, that uh, there's been an uptick in the use of the word empathy on the the focus on the word empathy and the importance on the word empathy. Um, in order to do that, I found a text that is, as I said, uh, legitimate. It's a whole book about the word empathy, if you can imagine, a whole book focused on just one word. The book is called Empathy, A History, written by Susan Lanzoni, who is a historian of psychology, psychiatry, and neurosciences. She teaches at Harvard's School of Continuing Education. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic and American Scientist and on Cognoscenti on WBUR Boston NPR News. And there was a passage from the introduction to the book that I thought was, you know, gives us a pretty good uh, thumbnail sketch on the word empathy and its sort of trajectory over the past hundred years or so. And so let me read from that passage. Empathy was first understood as the extension of the self or a projection of one's own implicit movements into forms, lines, and shapes. But by mid-century, empathy lost its projective meaning and its intimate connection to the arts. By the post-war period, and that means post-World War II, influenced by a therapeutic and scientific ethos, empathy captured a way to understand another more objectively on his or her own terms. No longer concerned with things, empathy became an almost exclusively about other people. This is not to say that empathy was not taken up in literary studies, theater, or the arts, for it most assuredly was. But since that time, empathy was no longer predominantly an expressive projection of the self into things, nature, or objects, Rather than an expansion of the self into a form or shape, empathy came to mean the very opposite, the reigning in of the self's expressiveness to grasp another's emotion in service to a therapeutic goal or moral imperative. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> so what does that mean? So if we back up a little bit farther in the intro, we learned that our English word empathy came from a German concept. And that German concept had a word, and that word was einfühlen, which basically means in feeling. And so that was a word that was related to this sort of aesthetic response to art, nature, objects and that um, our sort of uh, human impulse to try to make connections with those inanimate objects. Um, as Lanzoni writes, trying to fill those inanimate objects with feelings, emotions, moods, movement as well. And then over time, that 
idea began to change of what empathy meant and what it could be used for. And it moved away from that sort of focus on the aesthetic, artistic, and began to be used as a way to make connections between people. But in order to do that, instead of empathy being a form of projection of trying to put one's own emotions, feelings, ideas into inanimate objects, empathy became, um, instead of a projection, it became being more receptive to somebody else's ideas, thoughts, emotions, moods. And again, I think the end of uh, Lanzoni's um, sort of explanation that I read, it's the, the reining in or being more receptive to another's emotions in service, in service to a therapeutic goal or moral imperative. <clears throat> and so the point of empathy is not just to be sort of satisfied with trying to understand somebody else's perspective. The point of empathy is to take action, um, take the next step. Now I understand what another person is feeling in a certain, certain situation. So now my job is to try to make it better, to try to help that other person in some way. And so I think that's an important aspect of empathy that um, shouldn't be overlooked. It's not just about the feeling, it's about taking action. Um, There's one maybe quibble with the passage that I have that relates to this this idea of empathy being one, at first a projective um, sort of activity, and then now it's more of of a receptive um, sort of response. Because there's this this part of empathy that I think is important that will sort of be a bridge to our next text, and that is the um, the role of imagination in empathy. So, my understanding of empathy is that you need to build a bridge between yourself and this other person in order to be receptive to that other person's thoughts, emotions, ideas. And the way that we build that bridge, um, well, one of the ways I think that we build that bridge is through the imagination that we try to put ourselves into someone else's shoes. You've probably heard that saying before. And so that use of the imagination to build that bridge to that other person's perspective, that is still the projective sort of aspect of the old style of empathy, We're trying to put ourselves into that other person's shoes. Um, And in so doing and using our imaginations to project ourselves into that other person, then that also helps to establish a connection so that we can become receptive, so that that person's thoughts, moods, emotions can be um, more accessible to us. Um, It's kind of funny that, um, so we took this sort of concept a hundred years ago or so, empathy from the Germans, 
But then that word has changed over time to the point that the Germans actually took back the word <laughs> from us. They now have a word that is um, just like our English word, empathy, um, maybe slightly different in pronunciation. Um, but it's interesting how, again, language, one language, one culture can influence another, and then the other culture language has a sort of a boomerang effect <laughs> on the other. So that's interesting about language, how languages share ideas, words, concepts. Um, so that sort of gives us maybe a basic understanding of empathy, a very basic understanding, probably too simplistic understanding of empathy. But just to understand that the word hasn't always meant what it means to us now, um, that it has changed over time, over just the past 100 years, really. Um, and then I really think that even today, that word is uh, continuing to, to change. It's not sort of fully set in our minds. And um, part of that change means that it has maybe become in competition with the word sympathy, maybe has taken on some qualities of the word sympathy, and therefore perhaps has put a, devalued that word sympathy um, in our modern lexicon. But we'll take a break here. Um, and then on the other side, I've got another text. It's a literary text, and it's a text that I've used in class before, world literature class that I've taught in the past. Um, and I use it to talk about empathy, um, the role of the imagination to try to, to try to bring this concept into, into life and to make it practical. Um, so we will take a break here, come to, come back and um, dive into something literary, y'all. Get ready. Okay, so hopefully um, we've learned that this word empathy has been in the English language for a little over 100 years. Um, but I'm going to submit to you that the concept that the word stands for has been around for a very long time. Our next text comes to us from the 8th century BCE, written by Homer, and it's called the Iliad. <laughs> um, a very brief understanding of the Iliad it is an epic poem written about the Trojan War where you had Greeks battling Trojans. Um, the story of the Iliad picks up like 10 years into the Battle of Troy and a lot has happened in those 10 years. The main two characters that I want to focus on for today 
are Achilles, who is on the side of the Greeks, and Priam or Priam, who is on the side of the Trojans. Um, they have a important uh, moment together in the story that comes fairly late in the day after a lot of Greeks and Trojans have been killed, <laughs> um, including pretty much all of Priam's children, male children. And um, so Achilles has just killed Hector, uh, one of Priam's sort of favored sons, and now Priam has to go to the Greek side of the battlefield to plead with Achilles to return his son's body so it can be properly mourned. Um, and when I teach this text to my students, I tell the students that Achilles is often um, an example of what not to do. The text um, sort of teaches that Achilles has a lot to learn. Um, he's often called wrathful. He's often associated with rage. Um, he disrespects the chain of command. Um, he disrespects his elders. And in this part of the Iliad, he is you know, sort of disrespecting um, the codes of war and, um, you know, they didn't have the Geneva Conventions back in the 8th century BCE. Um, so he's having to be taught, and this is, you know, an interesting thing, taught by Priam, who is a king of Troy and therefore his enemy. He's being taught by Priam the importance of respecting the rules of war when it comes to how to treat prisoners of war, how to even treat those who are killed on the battlefield. But the reader is being taught the importance of empathy. So Achilles has done a bad, bad thing after killing Hector on the battlefield. Um, he takes the body back with him to the Greek side and drags the body behind his chariot um, and threatens to leave the body out to be eaten by dogs and picked apart by birds. Very unpleasant. So Priam does this unexpected thing. He makes his way to the Greek side of the battlefield surreptitiously, so he's going to confront Achilles and uh, beg for his son's body back. Um, and so I argue that in order for Priam to be successful, he has to get Achilles to empathize with him and put those feelings into action. So here's how the confrontation goes. This is from book 24 of the Iliad. And now, a dramatic reading. <clears throat> Unseen, Priam entered 
Achilles' camp. Then standing close with his arms, he clasped Achilles' knees and kissed the terrible manslaughtering hands which had killed his many sons. As when madness closes tight upon a man who, after killing someone in his own land, arrives in the country of others at a rich man's house and wonder grips those looking on, so Achilles looked in wonder at godlike Priam. So, uh, Homer makes it clear that Priam is a stranger in a strange land. He's the other. He's, in fact, the enemy, which is important because if, you know, if Achilles were grieving alongside one of his men, um, another one of the Achaean soldiers, warriors, then he would really be sympathizing with that person. But in this case, it's not sympathy that is going to be elicited or needs to be elicited um, from Achilles by Priam. It's, it's empathy. So the passage continues. Um, Priam addresses himself to Achilles, and he says, Remember your father, godlike Achilles, the same age as I, on the ruinous threshold of old age. And perhaps those who dwell around surround him and bear hard upon him, nor is there anyone to ward off harm and destruction. Yet surely, when he hears you are living, he rejoices in his heart and hopes for all his days to see his beloved son returning from Troy. But I am fated utterly, since I sired the best sons in broad Troy, but I say not one of them is left. Skipping slightly, picking up here. He who alone was left to me, he alone protected our city and those inside it. Him it was you lately killed as he fought to defend his country, Hector. And for his sake, I come now to the ships of the Achaeans to win his release from you. And I bear an untold ransom. Revere the gods, Achilles, and have pity upon me, remembering your father, for I am yet more pitiful and have endured such things as no other mortal man upon earth, drawing to my lips the hands of the man who killed my son. Wow. <laughs> it's quite a passage. Um, just to sort of run back through it briefly, and understand how this um, this attempt to achieve empathy in Achilles goes. Priam knows that Achilles is not going to sympathize with him. So he has to try to build that bridge between himself and Achilles. And the first step of building that bridge is to get Achilles to think about his own father. Okay, Achilles, you're not going to pity me as a father because I am one of your enemies. But if you can see in me someone who resembles your own father, then maybe I can get you to do what I want you to do. So he asked Achilles to remember his own father. And then here comes this component of um, engaging Achilles' imagination. 
perhaps those who dwell around surround him and bear hard upon him. So, you know, Achilles, again, has been away from home for about 10 years now at this point in the Trojan War. So it's possible things are happening at home um, and that there are enemies surrounding his own father, um, that his father is in some way in danger, just as Priam is surrounded by the Achaeans and is in danger. So he gets Achilles to see him as a father, as perhaps his own father, and gets him to imagine his own father in this sort of similar situation, being in danger and having to deal with his enemies. So first we have to see is this attempt successful with Priam. And so after he spoke, um, and here again I'm going to quote from the text, he stirred in the other a yearning to weep for his own father. And taking hold of his hand, he gently pushed the old man away. So Priam is successful at getting Achilles to feel to feel sorrow, um, to feel sorrow by imagining that Priam is his own father who is beset by um, enemies and is in danger. But then we've got to see, does he feel bad for Priam? Um, does he turn that feeling into action and do what Priam has requested? So we turn the page to find that Achilles has offered Priam some food and drink uh, kind of as a distraction. Um, we have um, Achilles, and here I'm quoting again, summoning his maids, Achilles ordered them to wash the body and anoint it. After taking it to a place apart so that Priam should not see his son, for fear the old man might not keep his anger hidden in his anguished heart on seeing his son and might stir Achilles' own heart to violence. And he kill Priam and transgress the commands of Zeus. And when the maids had washed and anointed the body with oil, they put around it the beautiful robe and tunic. And Achilles himself lifted it and placed it upon a bier. Then his companions with him lifted this onto the polished wagon. So Achilles feels bad for Priam when he imagines Priam as his own father who's beset by enemies. Um, but then Achilles takes that, that feeling and turns it into action. He does what Priam asks. He releases the body, um, even shows it respect here at the end of the passage. Um, so, so here again, I argue that although empathy may be new as far as a word to the English language, I don't think it's a new concept to humanity. So who could be overcritical about empathy? <laughs> Me, that's who. <laughs> so um, if you stick around here after this next break, I'll explain why. Trevor Alici is in an automobile. Is it an Uber? Is it a Lyft? Send me an email and we'll talk sponsorship. <laughs>
and I'm in this automobile with a couple folks. I'm going to ask them a question about empathy versus sympathy. So what's the difference between sympathy and empathy? I think that sympathy is the more the ability to feel sorry for another person. But empathy goes deeper than that. Empathy is maybe the ability to put yourself into their situation and more deeply understand what they're going through. Okay. So what do you think the difference is between sympathy and empathy? I don't know the way you spell it. One begins with the letter S and the other one begins with the letter E. All right, so what's there to be overcritical about empathy? Well, as I mentioned, I've seen the use of the word sort of proliferate, uh, certainly in the last 10 years or so. And I think the core meaning uh, or application of empathy has, I don't know, been lost or is wearing at the edges um, for example, I've been reading a book recently about the parables that Jesus told in the Gospels. Um, and the writer of the book at one point uses empathy and sympathy sort of interchangeably, as if they're basically the same word. And I don't think that empathy and sympathy are synonymous. Um I think they are two words that connote two different forms of feeling. Empathy, as we've already explored, is being more receptive to the feelings of others. Uh, try to put yourself in the shoes of someone else, someone who you know you may consider um, you know the other or a stranger or even an enemy and try to understand um, their perspective, what they're going through, what they've been through. And that requires a certain amount of imagination, right? A certain um, amount of um, engagement and investment in um, learning about and understanding somebody else's point of view. Somebody who, again, you may not agree with, um, and trying in some way to take that feeling and turn it into something something tangible um you know practical to turn it into action to see if you can turn that feeling into something good something positive sympathy i think is a different kind of feeling it's a feeling that you may have because you are going through a certain situation similar to um, what another person is going through. So you're feeling the same, the same way as that other person. Um, or you've been through a certain situation and you understand how someone else might be feeling because you've been there too. You've experienced, you know, the loss of a grandparent. You've experienced the loss of a pet. And so you can understand, you can sympathize with someone who is going through that experience, that grieving process. In that case, empathy and sympathy 
you know, one's not greater than the other. They're just different forms, different ways of feeling, feeling for someone else. And that brings me to another sort of aspect of the use of the word empathy that, again, is, I don't know, is disconcerting to me that there seems to be now this hierarchy of feeling that empathy is the genuine form of feeling for someone else, that empathy is more authentic than sympathy. Um, And again, I disagree with that. I think that in some cases, empathy can be flawed. Again, if we think about empathy requiring a certain level of imagination in putting yourself into somebody else's perspective, you know, our imaginations are strange and wonderful things, but they shouldn't be, we shouldn't use them to replace authentic interaction with people. Um, you know, another aspect of empathy that I've read about is in order to truly empathize with someone else, then you really need to not just walk a mile in their shoes, but you need to walk a mile or two or three or 300, 300 miles with the person. You need to know, get to know the person in order to uh, truly be able to empathize with that other person. And I think um, using the imagination or relying too much on our imaginations is a way to short, sort of short circuit that, is a way to, you know, avoid having to spend time with people who, again, you feel estranged from, people who maybe make you uncomfortable, situations where that make you uncomfortable. Um, having to deal with an enemy certainly is something that uh, people would probably rather avoid. Um, so yes, the imagination, I, I champion the use of imagination. Um, I think the more reading we do, the better we are at being able to, um, again, use that imagination, that power of imagination to uh, try to unlock some understanding of someone else. Um, but I think there are limits to what our imaginations can do. Um, <clears throat> so again, empathy may be not the more authentic way of feeling. Um, and the reason that sympathy, on the other hand, has been sort of downgraded is seen as inauthentic is because, um, uh, you know, it's association with the, the sympathy card industry, that sympathy is something you can buy and sell. Sympathy is something you can express, you know, in a few pithy lines on a card. Um, and that empathy, therefore, is something that is, you know, greater than that, um, and again, I just I think that I can imagine in maybe another hundred years or so that there may be such things as empathy cards. <laughs> I don't know. In this game of life, there are empathy cards. 
Um, and that, again, the, the more that empathy proliferates and is used either as just another word that means something like sympathy or a word that is greater than sympathy, um, that its edges are going to be worn down and eventually um, it will be seen as a word that is related to some inauthentic expression of fellow feeling of emotion um, and it'll be replaced by something else. And I also wonder, can empathy be stretched too far? So in most of what I've read about empathy, um, it's, a, it's, again, it's an attempt to understand what someone else is going through. But the focus is on a one-to-one relationship that is being created um, using empathy as a bridge to the other. Can empathy truly be felt if we are trying to extend it out to a group of people? I don't know. I'm concerned that, again, our power of imagination is just not that strong. Um, I'm concerned that, it again, we can use the sort of concept, the technique of generating empathy and use that to try to understand and explore a group of people. Um, you know, how, how deeply can that empathy really be felt if we're trying to use it to connect with a, a group of people, a vast group of people? who, again, may be different from us, who have different experiences from us. Um, I think at, at some point we stretch the word, the concept, so thin that, again, it, it, it devalues the concept. And I don't want to stretch this episode further than it's already gone. Um, I knew from the beginning that I wouldn't be able in half an hour to explore the word empathy fully to consider all of the implications of empathy. But I feel like maybe this is a good start. Maybe you'll use this episode and think about how you attempt to empathize with other people. Think about the role of imagination in developing empathy. And also, don't forget about the importance of translating that feeling that you're trying to um, experience into action in order to improve um, another's situation. And heck, even to better yourselves. Um, At the very least, if the only thing you got out of this episode is that you could write a whole book on one word... (laughs) then I consider that a win. All right, so this concludes our first episode on empathy. Maybe if this podcast continues, develops over time, we'll come back and explore the word a little bit more. Um, I promise that our next episode will not be as weighty. Um, Maybe more contentious, though. (laughs) I'll keep you hanging on the edge of your seat 
Until next time. Uh, don't forget about the email. You can email the show at trevoralici at gmail.com with some suggestions, um, maybe some helpful, constructive criticism of the show. I'll look for you there, and hopefully you'll listen to me next time. All right, until then.